Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Ian Campbell. Ian is a biochemist and businessman whose career to date has included helming a number of British diagnostic companies, including Arca and Molecular Vision, now part of Abingdon Health. But more recently, Ian has chaired Innovate UK, the UK government's innovation agency that funds business and research collaborations to accelerate innovation and drive business investment into research and development. Announced only last week, Ian will be joining the charity LifeArc later this year in a new role as Chief Business Officer, where he will help to forge partnerships with academia and industry, leveraging the charity's reach and capabilities. Ian, welcome. We're very pleased to have you on Extra Time. Adam, very grateful to you for the invitation to join you today. So help us understand where your journey began. What was the attraction to science? Uh, So this goes all the way back to primary school. And uh, I uh, was privileged enough to win uh, a prize at the end of year. uh, And I got to choose a book. Uh, And the book I chose was actually to look at astrology and the stars. Uh, and that seemed to spark uh, an interest in science for me uh, that continues to this day. Uh, the migration away from uh, the stars and space to life sciences, I'm not quite so sure when that happened, but uh, given the uh, people I've had to meet and the privilege of had to do the certain roles going forward, I'm delighted that that actually occurred. So you're an, an early starter, um, but of course you... You went on to do a PhD in biochemistry. I did. Uh, And again, there's there's an interesting story behind that. So uh, when I started my PhD, uh, as most graduates uh, find, they're not quite sure what they want to do. So I got offered the chance to have a sponsored MSc uh, looking at insulin resistance and diabetes for a year in the first instance. Uh, And serendipity plays a, a role in all my career. And I was fortunate enough to get some very early results. The British Heart Foundation uh, agreed to fund it for three years and I went from doing an MSc to doing a PhD uh, and that kind of drove uh, me into this line of work. But, but how did you make the leap from bench scientists into running innovative young life science companies? Uh, so when I was doing a I did a post, postdoc for 18 months uh, and I got working with a relatively new technology at the time called surface plasmon resonance to try and identify how proteins actually bind together and how you can measure how quickly they bind and how slowly they release. Uh, It was one of the first systems uh, installed in the UK. Uh, And again, I was fortunate enough to get a couple of early publications. I got to know the company quite well. And so I was at a point of deliberating what I was going to do next. And they said, well, could you come and be an application scientist for us uh, and join? And I did that at the stage where the the company only had uh, one or two products. We were developing more and I got uh, involved as an application scientist, tried to build the database of data. And so I've been involved with technology and technology innovations all the way through that. Uh, Got to pilot some new technologies while I was with a company called Beacore. 
quite like that. Thought that this is something different every day. We're learning new things. Uh, and from there, really got an interest in how to develop uh, technologies specifically in the health and life sciences field because I've always wanted to maintain that back to, background to, to biochemistry. And so I've always, in some shape or form, been involved in the cutting edge of either technology or product development probably since then. So you've, you've seen um, discovery science in the UK and, and globally, I suspect, from a number of different vantage points. Um, we, of course, have some tremendous discovery science and engineering in our world-class academic base. Um, in, in many ways, we punch well above our weight. Um, but are, are we as good at translating that discovery into value? Well, I think the data suggests that there is room for improvement. I wouldn't like to say that we're poor at it. I think we could improve. So if you look at the Global Innovation Index, currently uh, the UK ranks fifth in the world. If you look at it in terms of creating spin-outs and startups, we're roughly third in the world when you look at the amount of money invested per company. When you look at scale-ups, the challenge is that we're only 13th. So we lose something between that cutting edge, uh, academic science translating into small businesses and then migrating into companies at scale. And so I think if there's an, uh, there's an issue and a challenge, and I, I firmly believe an opportunity, it's taking that next step in identifying and promoting scale-ups. And part of that is to do with building more IP around companies before they're born. Sometimes spin-outs might be started too early. And secondly, looking at two things. The entrepreneurial skills that can drive businesses as opposed to the invention skills that drive discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to get the balance right with that. And secondly, the look at how to make uh, investors work earlier in the life cycle. And that's something I've tried to do at Innovate UK over the past couple of years through our investor partnerships program. It's a really key skill, isn't it? And, and one that we don't often encourage as much in our academic base, the ability to take a, a discovery, productize it or, or turn it into a service um, and, and scale that, um, that, that product or that service um, through a company and into industry. I'm interested um, to, to know a little bit about how you feel COVID-19 has impacted the innovation ecosystem in the UK and, and further afield, maybe. Has it been positive? Or indeed, do you think it's maybe set us back um, five years or 10 years or so? So I, I actually am on the positive side. So I think we can take some great examples of where uh, COVID has driven innovation together. The, the example I'll use that Innovate was, was involved in the periphery of was on the ventilator challenge. Yes. You know, how do we create 10,000 ventilators in a relatively short period of time? Well, what you do is you get groundbreaking companies to work together that don't make ventilators, but are very good at applying uh, reasoning, logic, machining and manufacturing together. So, uh, you know, the, the, the high value manufacturing catapult working alongside Formula One, working alongside Penlon, you end up getting uh, ventilators made at a factory that's run by an automotive company. <laughs> that's brilliant. But that does explain something more broadly about the ecosystem going forward. It is unusual and unexpected collaborations that yield the biggest impact. Mm. So how do we leverage that for the future? And I think that, that, that collaboration, that multidisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, cross-sector reach is how we will increasingly solve 
societal challenge going forward, whether that's in net zero, whether that's in healthcare, whether it's in very quickly being able to manufacture PPE or ventilators. I think those rules still apply. The one fear I have is that when we all uh, get back to some kind of normality, that we forget that those inventive steps allowed us to catalyze things much more quickly and dynamically than we've previously done before. And so the example I'll give you is we work with a, with a prototype uh, ventilator system. Uh, I got a phone call on a Friday night. I spoke to uh, Innovate CTO and, uh, and by the Saturday morning, we had it at the bench in one of the Formula One factories. <laughs> uh, we had it uh, digitally twinned by the Monday afternoon. And three weeks later, that d- device was ready for MHRA testing. That would have taken the company to do it about four or five years. It was done in three and a half weeks. So now that we've shown that we can do it, and it is the art of the possible, how do we make that an everyday occurrence to make us competitive globally? I think that's the big challenge. It's incredible. There's been a a number of stories that have come out of this pandemic that I'm sure just wouldn't have been possible without without this um, unprecedented period of, of focus. And of course, um, we, we've demonstrated to ourselves that we can achieve so much through collaboration um, across our industrial and academic base. And one, one segment of the life science industry that has benefited tremendously from this, this period of time, of course, is, is, is diagnostics. As you well know, diagnostics haven't always been in favour with investors, but many investors today might describe it as having a bit of a bull run. What, what changes have you seen over the last decade in, in, this, in this segment and, and what are your hopes for the future? Yeah, so so I, I think we need to go back to probably when home pregnancy testing became the norm. You know, so we no longer went to the doctors to confirm this, and it suddenly brought testing into the domestic uh, situation alongside diabetes testing. And the fact that glucose monitoring became an everyday occurrence for many people, unfortunately too many than we would like to see, but we'll transition from fundamentally lab-based skills into something that anybody could do at a moment in time. That's given rise to this hope for point-of-care testing. And I think, you know, the, the latter part of the 1990s, certainly through the, the 20, early 20s, was based on how do we get everything into point-of-care testing. And we kind of missed the point. Not everything needs an immediate result, and not everything needs to be done by a non-professional. And so I think... Why it's more attractive for investors now is we've gone from everything being point of care rapid anywhere to having near patient testing in hospital and clinical settings. And I think that change in emphasis works because then you're in a regulated and a controlled environment. The results are more reproducible. The technologies are more stable to be invested in. And you can look at a broader mix across uh, protein-based tests, nucleic acid tests, lateral flow tests. Multiplex arrays, and so you can see that there has been a change in the focus away from everybody having a small meter somewhere that measures everything or even doing it on your phone to having the best solutions near the patients at a time when they need testing. And I think the diagnostics industry has matured over the last five to ten years to demonstrate that that is a, a way forward. I'm sure that that has benefited um, not just from the advancements in wet science that, that happens at the bench side, but but also advances in the ability to connect um, devices to infrastructure, um, push and pull packets of data and and analyze that that data 
um, in near to real time, which you know Innovate UK and others have been um, largely largely responsible for um, in in the UK. There have been a number of really impressive um, uh, innovations in the health and life science space. Um, eh, we can go as far back as Sir Ronald Ross with his work on the Anopheles mosquito and the management of malaria, Sir Alexander Fleming and his, uh, his discovery of penicillin, and, 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 and some of the excellent work that came out of the Midlands on, on, on CT by Godfrey Hounsfield and MRI by Peter Mansfield. What are those um, innovations that you've got a keen interest in, you've been attracted by whilst, you're, whilst you've been leading Innovate UK and, and you've got great hope for for the future. Well, so, so I, I would start with a big theme with that and that is data. Hmm. And so if you think about all of the areas in which we're now capturing data, we could actually turn healthcare into either predictive healthcare or wellness monitoring, whichever way you want to address it. And I'm particularly excited by the use of data and collating information much, much earlier than a disease might manifest itself. So for me, the opportunities for AI and data gathering are tremendous. An area I think offers great excitement, but is probably underexploited, is behavioural sciences. Because we know that lifestyle is increasingly having an impact on our wellness. The role of wearable technologies could start to influence our behaviours. We, we all wear, I've got a smartwatch on just now, we all wear a watch. We, we all know how many steps we're doing a day. <laughs> we, we all need to be cognizant that, you know, COVID highlighted. If, if you have chronic underlying health conditions, your outcomes are not great. And so how do we look at the decisions we make every day? How do we employ behavioural science in a way that helps to inform the lifestyles we conduct and the choices we make. So I'm intrigued by how wearable technologies and behavioural science can come together. I, I also think we're in a great area of what I call predictive pathology. Uh, and just uh, the other day I was reading that somebody appeared in television uh, and uh, there was a phone call into the television studio to alert the uh, person being interviewed to the fact that they felt that they might have a uh, a cancerous lump uh, on their face. Mm. That was detected by a TV. The patient was in and out of hospital in less than 24 hours and has got an absolutely clear prognosis. So if you think about how we can diagnose disease differently using what we call predictive pathology, look at how we can use alternative therapies. So we've got cell and gene therapies. What about gene editing? What about the role of nucleic acid therapies for the longer term? We can really see we're in a golden age to develop new medications and the promise that these are like, like, less likely to be as toxic as existing pill-based, small molecule-based drugs. And that can only be a positive thing. So uh, uh, the other thing I would say is our awareness of aging has to improve. We are a society that's all getting older. Uh, and we need to use the right models to determine how we actually conduct healthcare as an elderly society. Uh, and I think one case in point might be, can elderly or vulnerable uh, patients respond to a vaccine and generate an immune response? And how effective will that be uh, to allow them to come out of shielding and go back into society uh, and be less fearful of contracting things like COVID?
It's certainly um, a very exciting time, isn't it, in, in health and life sciences as we know it today. And you've painted a, um, a really quite exciting future, I think, um, for, for the space. Um, but of course, you will be entering into that future in a, in a different role. Congratulations on your new role at, um, at, at LifeArc. I think you're, you're joining an excellent organisation that has the potential to really impact patient outcomes um, in, in the future. As, as you contemplate your first 90 days in post, what, what experience do you most hope to draw upon? I think the, the LifeArc role for me will draw across uh, I hope quite a lot of experiences that I personally have had, but but also uh, working with the, the teams, uh, certainly at Innovate when I was Director of Health and Life Sciences, getting to know the challenges that both academic research and SMEs in particular face in the life sciences field, and also how we turn great science into that greater patient impact, because ultimately, as a medical research charity, Life Art's mission is to try and get all the way to that patient to improve lives. Uh, and what I'm really looking forward to doing is, is utilising the network of contacts that I've made over the last you know, too many years, but certainly in the last four years at Innovate, to bring together new, impart- new partnerships and networks of partners. As I said earlier, cross-disciplinary collaboration will be beneficial in tackling all sorts of societal challenges, but also all sorts of disease areas that we're facing. Uh, and also the ability to work with LifeArt on the creation of new funds for investment and to mix the expertise internally that, that LifeArt has both in Stevenage and Edinburgh in you know, discovery and diagnostics, combine that with data, then you start to see that there's new ways of working. Also, you alluded to earlier, Adam, that we do have a great academic base to work from to tackle global health issues. So collaboration is definitely going to become the normal. Pulling expertise, technology partners and platforms and data sets, as I've said earlier, to expedite the development of innovative science for the benefit of patients is really what I'm hoping to do. And particularly expand the partnerships and strategic partnerships within that. Accessing, hopefully, external opportunities and leverage what LifeArt does alongside the capabilities of others to create maybe a different way of working going forward for the future. That's certainly the vision that uh, I know Melanie uh, has, uh, and I certainly share that around how do we integrate diagnostics, data, and discovery together. And it's a, it's a fantastic uh, platform with, with, a, with some great experience and successes. Keytruda, to name but one, um, it, it, it had an early hand in, and so I think, I think um, you're, going to, you're going to the right place, and I'm sure we'll see more of you and, and hear more of your, uh, your vision um, once you've got your feet under the desk. Finally, if you could pick three people to sit in your seat and be bombarded by the questions that, that I've thrown at you today in, um, who, who might they be and what questions might you ask them? So, uh, well, I, I'll start with one that might be unusual, uh, and I'm going to pick Catherine Johnson, who was a NASA scientist. She was an, uh, an Afro-American uh, mathematician charged with plotting how to get John Glenn into space. Uh, and she was female. She came from an ethnic minority. She came in at a particularly challenging time in the U.S.'s history around that. And she thrived. 
And the question I would like to ask her is, what advice would she give us today in light of the challenging events that we've seen from Black Lives Matter and a personal ambition of mine that I've seen through my work at Innovate through Women in Innovation to get more female entrepreneurs on the front foot, making applications, driving careers and helping us to see that great ideas can come from anywhere. So that's the question I would ask Catherine Johnson. Very good. The second one is probably a bit strange as well. And, and if you can get them, I think this would be a real coup. Uh, is Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the reason why I would want Elon Musk is if you think about what he's managed to achieve with two startups and the fact that he now has, by market cap, the largest car manufacturer in the world with a new net zero target around Tesla's, my question for him would be quite simple. Elon, if you're going to, going to go into health and life sciences, how would you go about it? What would you do differently? And what could we learn from, from what you've done with SpaceX and Tesla in particular? Because we need to do things differently. Repeating the same behaviours and expecting different outcomes we know is defined as insanity. So that's why I would choose Elon Musk. And I see that uh, I see that SpaceX is is raising a billion today on a yep. valuation of forty billion. So, um, no startup anymore. <laughs> Who's your last one, Ian? So the the last one is a bit closer to home, uh, and it's somebody I know uh, a little bit, and that's Patrick Balance. Fantastic. Uh, and as the government's chief scientific advisor, I would want to ask Patrick, in the light of COVID nineteen, what lessons have we learned? about what capabilities we need to establish, both to create a galvanizing science around pandemic responses in the future, but also to minimize the impact of any potential outbreak going forward. And then following on from that, if he was to wave his magic wand, what would he have done differently? Or at least what would he have advised to have been done differently? Fantastic choice of three, and they would make a, um, a really very interesting and amusing panel, I suspect. Um, uh, we will do our best. Um, Dr. Johnson, um, Sir Patrick, uh, and Elon Musk, your letter is in the post. <laughs> um, Ian, thank you very much. You've been a real gentleman. I've learned an awful lot. Um, we wish you um, all the best, um, and um, I'm sure we'll see more of you as you get your feet under the desk at Life Arc and start to engage with industry and the academic base to, to really leverage the potential of that platform. Many thanks. Adam, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for hosting me.